Dear Lord, I just thank you for um, this opportunity to gather together, open your word together. Lord, I thank you for these women. I ask you to open up our hearts, our minds. Give me the right words to say, dear Lord, let it be just directly from you. And just be with us and let everything go smoothly. But Lord, we want your presence. Dear God, I want your insight into all of this. And we just thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're talking about cotton the backwash. So, how many of you all know what backwash is? <laughs> when a whole bunch of water comes in, like you get a big flood, all this water pours in, and then all of a sudden it starts to recede and it all goes out, and it takes everything with it. It takes all the trash that have been laying around. It also takes all the good stuff. My grandmother, who was from the Midwest, I think people who are from the Midwest have the funniest little sayings, you know? I she used to have this saying that would, would be like, uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. They used to bathe babies in tubs, and, you know, when you got something good, you're trying to get rid of something, be sure you keep what's good. Don't get rid of it. But that's exactly what happened to Daniel and his friends. God had been warning Judah for decades, for hundreds of years, that they turn, needed to turn back to him. They needed to come back. They needed to stop their sin. They needed to, um, to start living by the law again. But they didn't. They ignored him. They, just, they would turn around maybe for a little while, and then they'd go right back to what they were doing. They were just doing what they wanted. They seemed to follow the path of the ten northern tribes of Israel, who were, um, and they watched those people. They had to have heard the stories. It was hundreds of years later now, but they had to have heard the stories of how this whole kingdom vanished. In 2 Kings 17, 21 to 23, it says, For when the Lord tore Israel away from the kingdom of David, they chose Jeroboam, son of Nabat, as their king. But Jeroboam drew Israel away from following the Lord. It made them commit a great sin. And the people of Israel persisted in all the evil ways of Jeroboam. They did not turn from these sins until the Lord finally swept them away from his presence, just as all his prophets had warned. So Israel was exiled from their land to Assyria, where they remain to this day. They never went back. And I read that, and I thought, how sad to be taken from your home, to have your kingdom taken away. But the worst line in that, was that he, um, it says that he swept them away from his presence. He didn't want to, he'd had it. He swept them away from his presence. And I thought, well, that's devastating to be turned away from God's presence. And here was Judah. (laughs) Didn't learn a thing. (laughs) They're doing the same thing. They did despicable things. They went so far as to sacrifice their children to a, one of the idols. There was one of the idols that, you, that demanded human sacrifice, and some of the Israelites actually, it talks about it, sacrificed their children. Who thought that the people who had been delivered from Egypt, who God had brought through the Red Sea, who he'd done all those things for, had sunk to this level? They sinned. And they did everything that the northern tribes had done. While sinning, they followed many of the ceremonies of the law. They still had priests. They still had the temple. They still went to holy days. You know, they still had their feasts. So one day you go to Baal or Ashtrod, 
and the next day what? It's, it's one of the feasts. They were playing at their religion. They had the shell of their religion with the actions, but none of the heart. They'd walked away from the heart. We have to be really careful here because we can do that. Not to their extent, maybe, but we can play at our Christianity without having the essence, the deep, alive heart of God involved, especially if you're raised in church. You know all the right words. You know all the right things to say. I was raised in church. I've been there. You can sound it, but sometimes you don't feel it as much. But you know, it's got to be real. And Judah only had the shell. They were just pretending. They wanted kind of a little of everything. I really think that it started way back when they first came into Jericho, after Jericho, when they first came into the land. God told them that they were to take the entire land. He, get, he set their boundaries up. You can read it. He told them to knock down every high place. He told them to drive out the people. He told them not to intermarry. He gave them all these things. They didn't do it. They didn't do it, period. They didn't do it. They never, ever, ever took all the land. They left some of the high worship places because, well, you know, they got comfortable. They got to live in houses they hadn't built. They got to harvest crops they hadn't planted. They had grapes and olives that they didn't put the trees in and have to wait for them. God gave them all to them. They were set up in their cities, and they got really comfortable. So they didn't finish taking the land. They didn't drive all the people out. They never took down all the foreign gods. And then they started to intermarry. And then it all started, this whole cycle of sin. They kept rejecting him. So in Daniel 1, we finally read that God allowed the Babylonians to invade Jerusalem and defeat the people, God's people. I think they'd become arrogant somehow. They, they might have even thought that they were indestructible because God had saved them so many times. And he'd perse- perse- they'd persevered over their enemy so many times. And you know, but this time was different because this time it was God that enabled the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, to come in and take the nation. God allowed them to. God set it up. God enabled them to do that. In Hosea 11.7, it says, My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call on the Most High, none at all exalt him. So Jerusalem fell. Judah fell. And... Um, They took a lot of the holy things out of the temple, the vessels and the cups, and they took them back to Babylon. They took a lot of the young men, a lot of uh, probably some of the young women. They they took the ones that were intelligent, that were good-looking, so that they could serve in the king's palace, the ones that had potential to be of worth to their kingdom. And they deported them. We don't know how many, it doesn't tell us, but there were probably quite a few. And you know, it all happened because they didn't obey. They made it a practice of not obeying. When I was thinking about this, I thought, we can have the same problem of not obeying. We can be pretty stubborn ourselves about what we want to do. And so I thought, when we don't, here's some of the ways I think it leads up to it. We think we're in control. 
Don't we love to be in control of everything, but of our own lives? <coughs> we quit acknowledging God's blessings. They forgot who gave them their cities and their crops and their land. They started thinking it was them. You boast about our own accomplishments like they're really our accomplishments. Look what a good idea I had. Look what I did. We stopped seeking him. And you know, when we don't seek God, we don't listen to him. We can't hear him. You're not going to hear from somebody you don't spend any time with or talk to. And so I thought, here's Daniel and his friends being swept off into a foreign country. And it would have been a good time for them to turn around and basically say, this is not my fault. I was not offering sacrifices to an idol. I don't know how I got here. I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't me. I was not the one not obeying the law. So why me, God? Why me? I'm sure his moms, since there's lots of moms in the room, I'm sure you've all heard that. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. It isn't fair. You're not being fair. I used to say that. My dad would always say, fair is only a concept. So, <laughs> But, you know, I, when I was doing this, I, I thought of a cute story, so I have to share. So I have these two little blonde great-niece and great-nephew up north, and, and they're, they're five and two, the five and three. When they were like four and two and three and one, the boy, Jacob, could help his sister <coughs> do things. She would let him. She liked it. But you know, they're five and three now, and as far as the three-year-old is concerned, she knows what she's doing, and he needs to leave her alone. But he doesn't see it that way yet. The concept hasn't caught up with him. And so they were playing the last time I was up there, and, um, and he has a big wooden track. They string all over, and they run trains and cars all over it. And, and she was running her car backwards. The front, The back end was in the front, and it bothered him somehow. And so he said, Kylie, you're doing it wrong. And she says, no. And he says, let me show you. And so he's taking it. And she says, no. And so we're getting into this little, I'm going to help you. And she's, I don't want you. And finally, she'd had it with him because he, he does kind of keep going. And she smacked him. And so it doesn't do any good to have your sister smack you if your mommy doesn't know about it. So, you know, so he cried. I'm not sure how hard a three-year-old can smack, but... So he was crying and, you know, making a big deal out of this. And um, she, my niece came over. I wasn't in charge, so I just sat there. So my niece, <laughs> my niece came over, <laughs> and um, she said, what happened? And Jacob says, Kylie hit me. And she says, Kylie, did you hit Jacob? And she says, he was taking my car. And so she said, okay. She said, now listen. She says, Jacob, you need to leave her alone. He goes, well, it's not my fault. She wasn't doing it right. I didn't do anything. And she says, Jacob, stop it. And she, he says, well, I was only kidding. I was just kidding her. And so then she says, okay, but you still go sit over there. So then she says, Kylie, no matter what, you never get to hit people. And she turned to her and she goes, I was just kidding too. <laughs> and I thought, we do that though. We make excuses for ourselves. So, you know, but I, I thought, you know, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. How many of us kind of sound that way to God sometimes? I didn't really mean that, God. I, I didn't do anything all that bad, you know? 
It's not my fault because it's their fault. We kind of sound like that. We get kind of whiny. Like when we get in situations that we really can't control and we don't understand. Like how about when the stock market slumps? Anybody who's like me, who's living on their retirement investments, <laughs> you know, I've learned to not watch it every day because it's not mine. It's actually God's. He taught me a lesson about that. And so, but, you know, you, you do, you worry. What happens when you lose the job that provides your income? You know, it's not fair. I prayed about it. How come this happened? I did what you said. Why me? Why me? Especially when we watch somebody else get what we wanted. Have you ever done that? You really wanted that promotion. And yet this other person who isn't even a Christian and is no smarter than you are gets the job. And we go, why me? Why them? Why, God? Why? And we've all done that. Or maybe it's just me who's done that. But <laughs> what are the, some of the things we complain about? I, try, I thought about that, and I thought, well, gee, I, we don't have enough time to go through that list. <coughs> so I tried to group them in big, big things. So money, finances, one of the biggest things that cause problems in our life is money. Not getting what we want. We're a people who really do kind of like we want what we want. And sooner rather than later, we, the, the concept of, of uh, planning and saving and waiting has left our society. How about illness? When you get that really bad diagnosis, when you have that treatment you have to go through, the test you have to take, those are troubling things that we can complain about. And family issues, the all-encompassing family issues. <laughs> How about the child that isn't serving the Lord? The person in your family who's always so obnoxious to be around on the holidays, <laughs> which are coming up. <laughs> you know, we all have family issues, and we can all complain about them. But you know the funny thing about reading Daniel is not once do you read where Daniel complained. Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't seem to complain. From the start, they recognized that it was God's hand in where they were and everything that had happened. It's the foundation that allowed Daniel to not just survive, but to thrive. The author of the book, Thriving in Babylon, made a statement that really stuck with me. He said, frankly, there is no way to make sense of Daniel's response to the wickedness that surrounded him without understanding his deep trusting in the sovereignty and goodness of God. Daniel had to understand. Daniel knew who God was. As we heard in lesson two about the names, Daniel knew God. Daniel knew Daniel. He knew who he belonged to. Who he knew his position in God. And on that, he could stand. On that, he could go through this and not complain. So how do we avoid our pity parties? We all have them. First of all, you have to know God's word. It's really hard to stand if you don't know what you're standing on. We have to claim his promises. Hard to know his promises if you don't read his word. 
We have to actively pursue God. Being a Christian is not a passive verb. You have got to be active. It's your job to pursue God. It's your job to have as much of God as you want and then to build up your faith. And the interesting thing about this list is if you do the the top three, you automatically get the fourth. Because if you're in his word, you know his promises and you're pursuing him, it will build up your faith. Because you also will know your God. I was talking to one of my sisters about this lesson. I often discuss it with this one sister. And um, about how Daniel's life, that I, th- I thought Daniel was amazing. And his life just showed such character. And that he had to know the Mosaic Law. Daniel had to absolutely know God's covenant with Moses. He couldn't have held on to God the way he did if he didn't know it. That God, he knew God would see him through. Daniel did not live in desperation. He was not constantly saying, please, 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 God, save me. Save us. He asked, he has a prayer, a powerful prayer about wanting God's deliverance, but understanding what was happening. But he wasn't pleading and begging. He was able to stand in the middle of evil, knowing that God would, would have it completed in his time and his will would be done. My sister mentioned that after thinking about it, what really struck her were Daniel's parents, that they had to have raised Daniel. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's parents had to have raised them to know God. They had to have implanted this in them. And from that, we got into a conversation about the environment we live in and a parent's responsibility to, um, to do that. And as we talked, she was saying that she thought we lived in a time where perhaps, oh, I don't need it, honey. Perhaps we needed to step up our game and, um, and you know, be care- really deliberately raise Christian ch- children that it calls for a new kind of parenting that allows us to introduce God at early ages. And any of us that have children or influence into children, I'm not talking to just parents because you have a lot on your table, but grandparents, great-grandparents, aunts, great-aunts, all of us who touch children's lives, it's a responsibility we have. And more than that, it's a God-given assignment to raise up children that know God. As we talked, it really sank into my soul that actually what we need to do is take ownership of that responsibility. Because when you own something, it's yours and you have to take care of it. We need to own it. And it really, the world is changing. And as evil takes over, I want the children I can influence to be steadfast. I want them to know God. Like Daniel to never waver and never question, to know that you are God's and that he definitely can deliver you. But if he doesn't, he can and will sustain you in the middle of trouble, in the middle of turmoil, and you can stand fast. And that's a job that we all have if we touch children's lives. The church can't do it on Sunday and Wednesday. The Christian school can't do it. It's not their job to do it. It's the parent's job in the home 
to raise up their children to know God. So that was kind of my little soapbox. We're going to get back to Judah and the destruction. that They brought the destruction on themselves. They were in this predicament because of their choices. Time after time, they had been warned, and time after time, they continued to disobey. They had periods of time where a king would come in, they'd find the law, they'd read it, the people would all repent, and they would live for God for a little while. That king would, like, go away, a new king would come in, and they'd be right back in their sin, right back into their disobedience. In Habakkuk, who was a contemporary of Daniel's, we read that the prophet questioned, how God could use evil to punish evil. He saw sin in degrees. You know, your sin's worse than my sin, so why are you winning? He says in in Habakkuk, he says, O Lord my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our sins. But you are pure. You cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? He didn't say swallow up righteous people. He just said more righteous than they are. (coughs) We can fall into this trap. We really do. We do fall into this trap. And how do we get there? We compare ourselves to other people. Well, I'm really living better than they are. I do this better than they do. We compare our lives to people. It gets us in trouble. We don't acknowledge our sin. We hate to call what we do sin. You know? It's just like, well, I made that kind of like my nephew. I was kidding. I made this little mistake, it, you know. And then we don't seek repentance. Because if, if we don't call it sin, we don't repent from it. And I think a few weeks ago, Pastor Rick in one of his sermons said that repenting actually means that you have to stop doing what you're doing. You acknowledge that you've done it, and then you have to stop doing it. You don't just acknowledge that you've done it and then do it again. And that's really important because God doesn't have hierarchy of sin. (laughs) I'm not more righteous than someone else. They're not worse than I am. And luckily, God loves us all, and he forgives us all, and he redeems us all. What Habakkuk failed to see is that God was using Babylon to bring God's wrath on Judah because God loved Judah. That's a hard concept for us to grasp, that God loved Judah so much that he almost destroyed him. But he had plans. He knew what he was doing. He wanted his people to turn to him. He had given them many promises, and all they had to do was follow his rules. They weren't even harsh or unjust rules. Time and time again, they chose to do what they wanted. We saw this in the wilderness with Achan. Remember Achan? He's the guy who kept some of the plunder from Jericho, buried it. And um, the next battle that they went into, several soldiers lost their life because of Achan's sin. They hadn't sinned. And then Achan's whole family lost their life, all of them, because of Achan's sin. Because sin has a cost, and it doesn't only just cost us. Sin has a cost that can affect generations. Sin comes with a price tag, and not only we pay for it, 
The people around us pay for it. Our families pay for it. Eventually, lots of people lost their life because of his sin. And just like us, we can choose within, to live within God's will according to his rules, or we can choose to live according to our own rules and be in control of our own life. You see, our choices really matter because they determine outcomes. We need to realize that we alone are responsible for our actions. In our society, we like to look around and blame everyone but us. <laughs> My parents, you know, they just didn't raise me right. They took the bottle away too soon, or they did this, or they did that, you know. Um, it's my heritage. I can't help it. It's society. Look at the media. Look what they tell us. I mean, how can I help that? We like to blame everything. We, do not want, we don't want temptation or trouble. We don't. We prefer this smooth road. We get saved. Everything's wonderful. <coughs> not the way it works. James 1, 2 to 4 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. According to that, it says that we're not going to be complete until we endure. It's hard. You don't have to endure good times. You only have to endure bad times. So we're all going to get tempted. We're all going to get choices to make where we want to make one, but we know God wants us to make the other. We're all going to get those. And as we endure those, as we take those trials, as we take those things that come into our life that aren't pleasant, then we're going to be able to be perfected. If we never have those, we're not going to be perfected. We're not going to know that God can deliver us unless we have to be delivered. It's after you've been delivered, you can look around and say, look what God did. He delivered me. Next time I'm in a problem, I know he can deliver me. Some of our suffering is purely our own fault. Like Achan, we create our own backwash. We make bad choices. We don't repent. We want what we want instead of what God wants. We're selfish and we're stubborn. You know, while I was studying this, I... I, I thought of a book I'd read a few years ago, and we actually had a summer series about it, Bait of Satan by John Bevere. And in that book, he says that one of the sins, one of the primary sins that allow the enemy in to kind of fracture our soul is, um, is to uh, take offense, to hold a grievance. Somebody says something, and you take it. Maybe you're really offended. Maybe you have a right to be offended. It still doesn't mean you need to hang on to it. But we'll take this little offense and we'll like nurture it. And then we'll talk about it to other people. Did you hear what they said? Did you see what they did? Until we grow it and we take care of it. And, and it roots in our, in our spirit and it actually breaks us apart. I was coming down from uh, the San Fernando Valley uh, in the middle of the week, in the afternoon a couple weeks ago, which is not a, never a good thing. And um, it was traffic-y all the way down. And then I was just where the freeways merge on the other side of L.A., and I was sitting quite still in um, the fast lane of traffic under a bridge. And they had these huge bridge abutments, and they, they 
fit up against each other, and, you know, they're all bolted together and that. And I was sitting there just kind of looking around because there was nothing else to do. And um, out of this little crack where the bridges come together was a tree. It was only about as big as my thumb. It was about two feet long, had leaves on the end. And I was looking at it, and I thought, what in the world? I wonder where that's rooted. Because these are huge bridge abutments, and this little thing's sticking out. And I got to thinking about it, and I thought, you know, that's what this sin does in our life. That's what, that's what John Bevere is talking about. Because if Caltrans doesn't take care of that little tree, it'll grow. And it won't just grow long. It'll grow thicker and thicker. It would actually break those bridge abutments apart. And that's what happens in our spiritual life when we don't handle things in a timely manner. The book goes on to say that, um, that we take a slighter grievance and we need to deal with it. We need to not take it into our spirit and nurture it. We need to pray about it. If necessary, you need to talk to the person that you think offended you. Maybe they didn't even mean it. That's the next thing he says, is sometimes we could just step back and say, it's really not that big a deal. I know that person. They probably didn't mean it at all, and I can just let this go. And we need to repent if we've taken that in and we've harbored it. And Jesus thought this was so important that in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he said, so if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. You know, he never even mentioned whose fault it was. He didn't say, if you're offended with someone, go take care of it. Or if they're, he basically said, if there's anything between two people, go take care of it. James 1.12 said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life which God has promised those who love him. God has promised us a crown. Women love jewelry, so that should be a good prize. But we have to endure. We have to endure temptation. Daniel knew it was not his fault that he was captive. He knew that God was doing exactly what he said he would do and that it must be God's will for Daniel and his friends to be in Babylon. Daniel accepted his assignment, and he did not blame God or Babylon. He just did. God, in his eternal view, had bigger plan than Daniel could see, because God knew that in 70 years he was going to bring them all back. They were going to rebuild the temple. They were going to rebuild the city. They were going to rebuild the walls, and they were going to serve him. Even when it appears that the wicked are winning, we know that God is at work, and his will will be done. Daniel knew his God was bigger than Babylon. So I guess my big question to you is, how big is your God? How big of a God do you serve? Is it bigger than those financial problems? Is God bigger than your health issues? Bigger than your family crisis? We need to be like Daniel and trust God. We need to never doubt that he's on his throne and that God is in control. How big is your God? Is he big enough that you don't worry when you're in a predicament? Is he big enough to let loose of what's wrong and let him handle it without my help? Daniel never wavered. He had a deep, real, daily relationship with God. Daniel prayed. 
It said he prayed three times a day. And he faced Jerusalem because he loved Jerusalem and longed to go back there. Never got to. And I'm not saying we have to pray three times a day and we don't have to face Anaheim because this is where our church is. But, <coughs> but we need to pray. It's hard to know who God is if you don't get to know him. You need to pray. Daniel heard from God. <coughs> he was visited by an angel. He spoke into the empire that had three kings, two very evil. He watched the empire fall. A new one came in. He was even, Daniel was even more elevated. They actually, his enemies actually had to make up a law to get Daniel to break one, which is really quite amazing. And Daniel was sentenced to death. He was in his 80s. And God delivered him. And through all of this and more, Daniel never questioned what God was doing or lost his focus on God. And although he never returned to Jerusalem, he praised God and he served him. So how can we be successful in trouble? Never waver in serving God. I had a pastor friend tell me one time that um, ministry and service is never convenient or rarely convenient, but you need to never stop doing it. You never get to retire from serving Retire from serving God. It's important to be involved in service. We need to spend time daily in prayer and study. We need to know those promises we're going to stand on. We need to trust that God is in control. See, Daniel has become my hero. I think we need little hero cards. You know how they have superpower cards? I want Daniel cards. I want to be like Daniel. In the end of Habakkuk, it says, I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will make joyful to the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as deer, able to tread the heights. Now, what Habakkuk's saying in our day and age is even though every single thing I depend on, everything I have, everything I count on is gone. Even though everything I've built up, everything I've worked for, everything I need is gone, I will rejoice in the Lord. Now, there's not complaining. (laughs) He's saying, I will rejoice in you because I know that you can raise me above it and you can put my feet on high places and I can thrive. That's what Habakkuk's saying. We live in Babylon. It's getting worse. No longer are Christians admired or even considered. Actually, I read a political speech where we were told to get over ourselves that the world has changed, morals have changed, and we need to quit being stuck back here. I honestly believe that if if the church, if we as Christians ever give an inch on what God calls his sin, the church is in trouble, and the world's in even more trouble. So the question is, are you ready to be a Daniel? You ready to raise a generation of Daniels? Because that's what we need. Are you ready to not let circumstances set your mood and your faith, but to trust God and, and with our theme to thrive and to influence others? Because only when you know 
how Daniel did it, will you be able to do it too? So thank you. God bless you.